All right, well, welcome this morning. Looks like everybody's got their coffee. We can, we can make some more. It looks like we're down to about a quarter of a pot, so we can make some more, but let us, let us know if you want some more, because I think last time we assumed we had about a quarter of a pot left, and we made some more. We just ended up with a, a pot and a quarter left at the end of the morning. So, so let us know. We'd be happy to make more if you would like some. We have come to the last chapter in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. So we'll read that in just a moment. We may have some, some retrospective comments about how we've gotten here, what we've seen brought to fulfillment, what's left kind of to be continued as we leave the book of Genesis. But let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll read the text together. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the Lord's day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather early with coffee in hand, with Bibles open, to read your word, to discuss it together, to, in a, in a different format than public worship, peer into the depths of the riches of what you have given us in the scriptures. We pray that our discussion this morning would be fruitful, that you would give us deeper insight into your word, a greater understanding of what you have done for us, of of your character, and of who we are in Christ. And we pray that you would give us, through times like this, a deeper love for your word, an ever-increasing curiosity, and a desire to know you more. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 50. Uh, I'll back up to verse 28 of chapter 49. We read it last week, but that last paragraph kind of forms the bridge between Jacob's blessing of his sons and then his death and then the last chapter. So I'll back up a bit. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. When the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, 
as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. All right. What do you notice? What do you see? I'm curious, is there any other, aside from Christ, is there any other burial that's given as much ink in Scripture? That's a good question. Off the top of my head, I don't think so. You could be wrong, but there is. There's a lot of attention given to Jacob's burial here. And then the, the preparation and anticipation of Joseph's burial. Although it's odd, right? It's, it's odd that they take Jacob into Canaan. And Joseph makes them promise to take him later. But he waits in Egypt with them. That's interesting. It's interesting that the whole family doesn't go. You have more Egyptians going than you actually have family going to bury Jacob. Yeah, and that's going to be a, a, a major contrast with what we see a few generations later in Exodus. The relationship between the Israelites and the Egyptians is of a very different character. Right. Right? We see Pharaoh and his, his attendants welcoming 
Jacob's household, we see great respect shown to Jacob. And then here with the burial, right, he sends like an official delegation to go with him for the burial. He treats him like family. Yeah, it is like family. What else do we notice? What is the threshing floor of Atad, and why is it significant in them stopping there to grieve? That's a good question. I don't know if it has a significance before they stop there, right? It may just be that this is the place where they stop that maybe marks their entrance into Canaan. But once they stop there, and I guess they, they spend maybe seven days worth of mourning there before they continue to where they bury him, then at that point it has this significance and it's associated with the burial of Jacob. It's associated with this mixed multitude mourning Jacob's passing. And so it, it's given a name that reflects that, the, the mourning of the Egyptians. But that, the name that it's given highlights what we've, what we've already mentioned with this, this relationship with Jacob's family and with the Egyptians. What has driven the plot of Genesis up to this point? What do, we, what do we keep circling back to and reminding ourselves what was promised? How do we see it working out? Just getting to the land God promised Abraham. Yeah, that promise to Abraham. We see it first in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. We see it repeated in chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22. It gets reaffirmed with Isaac. And then with Jacob, in particular, as Jacob's on the eve of coming down into Egypt, what were the elements of that promise to Abraham? The three primary emphases all started with a P. People, place, and presence. People, place, and presence. Right? All right, some people will call it the quad promise and add blessing, but blessing's kind of implied through all of it, especially with God's Presence, right? God promises to, to make Abraham into a great people or a great nation. He even says at one point, kings will come forth from your loins, right? He promises to give him a place that he is prepared for that people so that the people can dwell securely in his presence in that place that he has chosen for them. He promises his presence to go with them. And in particular, that works itself out as in the way the Lord interacts with the people who interact with Abraham and his family, right? Blessing those who bless him and cursing those who dishonor him, right? How have we, right? We've seen this work out in different ways along the way. We've seen God's presence with this family consistently. We've finally begun, as we've talked about, in Joseph's generation to see their becoming a great nation so that 70 people come down into Egypt. Whereas before, you know, we had a single son through the next generation that the the promise was continued through. But now it's a, a whole generation with Jacob's sons. But what do we not have? The land. Yeah, we don't have the land. We have a down payment on the land. We have this burial place. 
that, that Abram bought from the Hittites. And we found out in the last chapter in the midst of Jacob's blessing that there's also this mountain slope that he won in battle that he also owns in the land. But in terms of God's promise, we think especially of Genesis 13, when he and Lot are dividing up the land and they go up onto a, on a hill where they can see forever, essentially. And Lot's like, I want that. And then he goes down and then the Lord says to Abram, actually, everything you can see from here, I'm going to give to you, including what Lot just chose, right? The whole of it's going to be yours. But at this point, at the end of Genesis, all we have is a, a field with a cave and one mountain slope. So how do we interact with that? Because we've got, it's kind of a, a double-edged thing, right? It's been promised, and we have a down payment on it, but we don't have it yet. So is that land that God, that Abraham looked at, is that the promised land? It is. The Egyptians go to, up yeah. that we go to, or the Israelites go to on the Exodus? It is. Yeah, it's the land of Canaan. Okay. It's the land that they'll come back to. Yeah, and we see both with Jacob and with Joseph, both of them, how they, how they interact with the family. It's as though it's a reminder to them, look, that land God will give to us. We're going to be here a while. But just as God's been faithful in fulfilling all of these promises, in being with us as a family, in demonstrating his care and provision along the way, just as he's fulfilled all of these things thus far, this peace that remains future will nevertheless come to pass. So plant me in the ground in the land that God has promised. Because he will keep that promise too. It's interesting that, that Genesis ends with everything except the land peace being carried out and coming to some kind of fulfillment. And in the same way, the Pentateuch is going to end with that not quite fulfilled, kind of to be continued note, right? Because the people of Israel have arrived on the far side of Jordan. They're in the plains of Moab. They're in view of the promised land. And speaking of down payment, they've already gained some territory on the east side of Jordan, but they haven't crossed over yet. And Moses stands up and gives the longest sermon ever preached, despite some honorable mentions, in view of the land. And he doesn't get to go over. And so the last chapter of Deuteronomy Right there is an assurance that God has provided for them a leader who's, who follows in Moses' footsteps, but is not one like Moses, who will take them into the land, but we end the Pentateuch not in the land. Still with this kind of, God's made them into a great people, even more so than at the end of Genesis, right? His presence has gone with them, and we now have a physical manifestation of that with the tabernacle and he's going to keep his promises to give us the place, but we don't have it yet. That awaits the book of Joshua. It's interesting how different portions of scripture kind of end with this to be continued note that 
push us into the next portion of scripture, right? The, the historical books do that, right? Um, the book of Kings ends at the beginning of exile, pushing us into this expectation of, of return. I mean, we went through Ezra and Nehemiah and we're in Ezra and Nehemiah, we're, we're back in the land, but, but some element of what the prophets promised about being back in the land is, is missing, right? And that, that piece of things that's not fulfilled pushes us toward the New Testament, right? And, and we talked about it when we went through Nehemiah, but when the temple is rebuilt, if you think about when the tabernacle's completed at the end of Exodus, what happens? It's filled with the glory cloud of God's presence, right? So that Aaron and his sons can't minister. They just have to wait. Everybody gets to celebrate, but, but it's as though God comes in a visible form to inhabit the tabernacle. When Solomon completes the temple and, and then dedicates it in 1 Kings, same thing happens. The, the glory cloud of God's presence comes and fills the temple. In Ezekiel's vision around the exile, at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, that cloud of God's presence withdraws from the temple. Then the Babylonians come in and destroy it. But then in his vision of a new temple at the end, the last eight or so chapters of the book of Ezekiel, in the midst of that, the cloud of God's presence comes and again fills a new temple that Ezekiel sees. But when we see the temple rebuilt after the people return in the book of Nehemiah, there's no cloud. There's no cloud. And that, that missing piece then pushes us, right? It pushes us toward the New Testament. It leaves us wondering where's, there's something that's supposed to be here that's not. Where do we look to see it? And then we see Jesus coming to the temple. What else do you see here at the end of Genesis? The LeBrons are still worried about their sin against Joseph instead of their faith in God. And they're still trying to manipulate it to where they're trying to protect themselves. Yep. Once dad's died, once dad's gone. His dad, their protector, is gone now. So, but they're still worried about what they did to Joseph instead of seeing yeah. what Joseph had done for them already, or what God had done for them already. I reckon if you have siblings, this chapter makes sense to you. If you've done something, or maybe you're the one who's sinned against, right? When mom and dad are around, the siblings are safe. But when they're gone, you know, whoever's in trouble, they're going to catch it from their older sibling. And here it's not they spilled something on your favorite shirt or something like that. I mean, they legitimately tried to get rid of their brother and their brother had ended up second in command of, of the leading nation in the known world with everything at his disposal. I mean, if, if Joseph wanted to disappear somebody, he could make it happen. So they have every reason to be afraid given how they treated him. And what he was in a position to do. But just as God had transformed Judah's character over the course of those, you know, however many decades, 
So he had also transformed Joseph's character so that he could say even earlier, not just because he knew it was the right thing to say in public in front of other people, but because he legitimately believed it, that all of this that transpired, which you did, right? And he doesn't hold back on that front. Like, you did mean this for evil. You meant to harm me. He doesn't say, it's okay. I know you didn't mean that. Like, no, you did. You meant that. But God was able to use it. God had ordained from the beginning, actually, to use that. Not just for my good, not just for your good, but to feed the world. And to be a primary means that he would use, actually, to fulfill the promises to Abraham. We have a couple... Jacob and Joseph both seem to have the sense that they're going to be in Egypt a while. Why would they think that? Because the famine's over, so couldn't they just go back? Why would they think that they're going to be in Israel for, or, excuse me, sorry, in Egypt for a while? He does have to ask permission to leave, which is interesting. I mean, he's, he's serving in civil service. He can't just disappear despite some recent examples of things like that. Yeah, he has to ask permission. It's been prophesied they'll be there 400 years. Yeah. Yeah, we see that in a couple of places. The Lord has already disclosed that that they're going to be there a while. The first time that comes up is in Genesis 15, uh, when Abram is, before his name is changed, right, as he's struggling to believe the promise. And so the Lord actually has that, provides that covenant ceremony in a vision. In the midst of that, he says uh, in chapter 15, beginning at verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a couple things going on there, right? One is we see actually God's patience on display toward all the ites in the land. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites list of them further down, we see God's patience toward the people of the land as they have ample opportunity to repent. But if we continue into the book of Joshua, that's going to temper how we understand how God's interacting with those people because they've had 400 years to consider, to hear God's word, to turn from their sin. And despite the, the rhetoric of the decree of destruction, we see that any that do, even in that 11th hour, as the armies of Israel are marching into the land, we see any individuals, any households, any peoples who repent, even when it seems to be too late, are actually enfolded into the people of God. We see that with Rahab. And her household, even as the walls of 
Jericho are coming down. We see it with the Gibeonites, a whole people who actually deceive Israel to get them to believe that they have come from some faraway place and they're not in the part of the land that's under that, that ban. Nevertheless, as they make a covenant, God honors that and enfolds them into his people. So we see God's patience. We see the expectation, right, of that they'll be, they'll become slaves and they'll be afflicted and they'll be, of course, God doesn't identify which nation it is here. But then later, as Jacob is on the cusp of going down, right, the Lord speaks to him. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. In chapter 46, but as he's beginning to go, in 46 verse 2, it says, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again in Joseph's hand shall close your eyes, tells him to go down. But we know beforehand that they will come down into Egypt, that they'll be there for some time, and then the Lord will bring them out. A question about the embalmed. Yes. So Jacob and Joseph, the only two that are mentioned in, about being embalmed? Because they are. The Egyptians were the only ones that could do it, correct? Or were doing it at that time, I suppose? Yeah. But we don't hear of anybody else being embalmed throughout the right so whether they were or not we don't know it's just silent regarding it so but yeah they seem to go through the whole process right if you've read anything about egyptology and mummies and that whole process like they seem to do that for both jacob and joseph which is probably good since it's it's a long journey mm-hmm. From Egypt back up to Canaan to bury him. Uh, and to bring up, uh, thinking about Lazarus, when the, you know, Mary and them say, they telling Jesus, hey, he's going to smell. Yeah. And so thinking about that is that, well, he probably wasn't involved. Uh, no, probably not. If that was the case. No, we know that, that later Jewish tradition requires a body to be buried within 24 hours. But we don't know at what point that develops. Clearly, it wasn't in play for Jacob and Joseph, right? It may have been in play already for Lazarus, or that may be something that comes later than the New Testament. So, there's a lot of Jewish tradition in the, in the Talmud, for instance, that's, that's written down two, three hundred years after the New Testament, but in many respects may represent things that were current at the time of Jesus. We just don't know because it's, it's written down after. So. I think it would have been a lot harder or not that God couldn't have done it, but if Lazarus would have been embalmed for him to be risen from the dead anyway. Yeah. Look at that aspect of it. Well, given how the Egyptians did things, there would be a lot of busted open jars inside that tomb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that, that brings up something that's, that's interesting to contemplate, right? When we look at the end of Revelation and it, and it talks about the resurrection and it talks about the grave and the sea giving up their dead. You think about guys buried at sea who are 
probably largely eaten by the fish, that doesn't inhibit the resurrection, right? Death, decay, bodies going to pieces, becoming a part of other things in creation does not inhibit God's ability to reconstitute those bodies with some sense of continuity between the body that was laid to rest and the body that's raised in glory. And that, that raises all kinds of questions uh, that are interesting to contemplate. Um, the last couple of chapters in Augustine's City of God, he actually has this lengthy thought experiment where he kind of walks through, well, what about in this scenario? How does that work? And what about in that scenario? How does that work? And at the end of the day, he scratches his head and says, I don't know. That's going to be interesting. I'm not to get off on a rabbit hole, but, but bringing in cremation, mm-hmm. that part of it. So that's all. Yeah. That's, that's no hindrance for the resurrection. Yeah. Right? Because bodies are burned up in fires and whatnot. Quite apart from uh, an intentional cremation. But that, that's, no, that's no difficulty for the resurrection. Yeah. The thing about the martyrs, some of them were eaten by lions, others were burned at the stake. Yeah. If God can create the world by the word of his mouth, then there's nothing in that world that he created that can keep him from resurrecting both the just and the unjust. So, but yeah, I mean, that raises all kinds of other questions too. If we want to, we want to chase that. And this is one of the things Augustine scratches his head about, right? Like the body that we'll be raised with, is that going to be the body we had when we died? Because some of us might rather not, right? Um, What about children who die young, infants who pass away? What kind of body will they be raised with? And of course, scripture doesn't answer. Uh, but Augustine lands with, he, he reckons that we'll be raised with, with the bodies that we would have had or did have in our prime, whatever that looks like. But, but that's just his guess. I kind of like that guess, but, but we don't know. That's something, sorry? Keeps referring back to the, uh, Abram had bought the land from Ephraim the Hittite. Was that just word of mouth agreement? Because I don't think there was any written language really at that time, was there? There was. There was. Uh, the invention of writing is much, much, much older than we gave it credit for. Uh, and actually about, about 100 years ago, before the discovery of some of the clay tablets in the ancient Near East, the, the common understanding was that the invention of, light, of writing was quite late. So like... Abraham wouldn't have written anything. Moses wouldn't have written anything. Like, that's all hogwash. In the Old Testament, it's all just made up. Like, no way they were writing things that early. Um, and then we found material remains from the ancient Near East with extensive writing, with great works of literature that were thousands of years older than we thought writing was. The weird thing that happened, though, is that those discoveries in archaeology and all the discussion of that and the the development and understanding of how that worked, it took 
probably 50, 60 years for that to find its way into textbooks about ancient history. So we still had, I mean, even at the time I was taking, you know, world history in high school, we still had textbooks and teachers who seriously suggested that writing was invented after Moses, even though they were also teaching us about Hammurabi's code, which was written contemporaneous with, or maybe even a little bit earlier than Moses. Yeah. Writing finds its way into Europe late because it's probably developed first in modern Iraq, kind of that region. So they develop a really complicated system of writing that is, is not worth learning, right? The only people who use it are, are accountants who are having to keep track of, you know, how many sacks of grain left and how many sacks of grain arrived and, and do all the accounts balance. And they seem to be the first ones who develop writing. And then it becomes more complicated. And then they realize that's not working. And so they start to simplify it. And actually the invention of the alphabet um, is a tremendous technological breakthrough. We don't think of it in those terms. But if you go from having to know thousands of signs in order to be able to write and correspond to having to know even 60 signs, let alone just 20, 25, and to know how to combine them in order to represent language on something that you can then send to somebody. Like that's, that's just huge. So. They, they have found the ancient writings approximately the same time in uh, China. Mm. Don't miss. It sounds like we've been on a, on a rabbit trail for the last 10 minutes or so, and maybe we have, but, but our discussion about the resurrection actually ties directly with what we see here, right? Because why do they want to be buried in the land? Yeah, God's promised the land, and there is an element of, right, they want to be placed in the land that their descendants will return to. But it's not just about that land promise. As we've talked about before, it's also about wanting to be buried with the family so that at the resurrection, you'll be raised with the family. You don't have to go looking for them, right? They have inherent, built into their understanding of where they want to be laid to rest, a notion of, of resurrection, Right? An explicit and detailed discussion of the resurrection we don't find in Genesis. It comes much later. But in their desire to be buried with the family, there is a witness to their understanding that they will be raised and their desire to be raised together. All right. We've come to the end of the book of Genesis. So, yes, sir. Thinking about the uh, when when God brought them out of Egypt, uh, you know how He brought them out with a mighty hand mm -hmm. uh, that uh, just miraculous. All of the miracles uh, in our terms uh, that He He used to bring them out, you know the Red Sea, uh, drowning the Egyptians, 
only known, you know. He caused everything to happen, so Pharaoh wanted him to leave, you know. Of course, then he changed his mind, but. <laughs> yep. You know. Yeah. yeah. I think after, he, when they were start leaving, then he realized what, what is happening. You know, he's, all these slaves, he's, he's losing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting with with Genesis. I mean, we see creation. The first 12 chapters of Genesis, we see God's works on a grand scale in the sight of the nations. So that they, they can't escape the knowledge that it's God who, who did this. But then as he begins to work with Abraham, most of God's works throughout the rest of Genesis, they're on a small scale or they're behind the scenes, or they're through his providence and bringing things about to take care of this family and to keep his promises to them. But as we get into the book of Exodus, it'll be once again on a grand scale before the eyes of the nations, so that all the Egyptians see, but also all their neighbors hear. So that when they arrive uh, and they send spies into Jericho, the people of Jericho know and have heard and are terrified. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, from the very first book, this witness to the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, for the clear display of your watchful care over your people, your provision for their need, your presence with them, even as they anticipate affliction. We pray that as we reflect on what you have done for the family of Abraham, so we would look forward in faith to what you will do with a renewed and deepened sense of trust and a reminder that you are a promise-keeping God. Would you strengthen our faith as we continue to reflect on your faithfulness to Abraham and his children? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.